There we go. Hi. Hi. You seem so familiar. Like, it just, not that I've met you before, but you just have a familiar vibe. Mm, I like to hear that. It, there's a familiarity. So I'm trusting that intuition. Love know? to hear it. Yeah, you know what's funny? Everyone that's been on the podcast so far and who I'm connected with, it's all been a weaving of intuition. Do you use your intuition often? Do you rely on that or kind of like half 50-50 logic? A thousand percent intuition. That's cool. What made you want to know about bees in general? What did you want to learn? I know nothing about bees and I know there is a major issue with the climate and the world right now and their population. Their population is decreasing by the minute, isn't it? So I wanted to know, one, what can we do as people uh -huh. to help them as well as what are the kind of butterfly effect of what happens when they're gone? Okay. What is the process of their society? How do they mm -hmm. work within their group? Okay. And anything else you have, any other information about them? Cool. Um, so bees started to, um, well, people started to notice, like farmers started to notice that bees were in decline around 1996. But from like what I've read, they've, they started to notice this already back in the 1940s and 50s. And even before that, going back historically, there's this guy named Rud Rudolf Steiner. Um, he was an Austrian, like sort of like a philosopher, writer. He's sort of like a genius. Um, over a hundred years ago, he was telling all of the people who were trying to commercialize beekeeping basically starting to um, play with play around with bees genetics saying that you know like how they were starting to rear humans started to rear queens and they've been doing this for about you know thousands of years but he predicted that if we continue to go on this path that there'll be such a big consequence to this and, and his prediction came true so like we go towards uh, 1996 and there's colony collapse, meaning people like the beekeepers started losing 40 to 60% of all of their hives. And uh, they didn't know where the bees went. The bees just disappeared. They, they didn't like find them dead in front of the hive entrance. They didn't find them anywhere in the farm they looked. And at that time they thought it was cell phone towers that was interfering but that's already been debunked. What they found out was, you know, this was a little over 15 years ago. And, you know, even though we've been with this animal for thousands of years, um, science and, you know, technology figured out that, oh, these animals were being mistreated. Basically, the farming practices, we're talking about like big agricultural farming practices, just like with the way cows are treated in those slaughter mills and and chickens you know animals being mistreated and just used for profit basically that's the bottom line and so they couldn't figure this out for the longest time it took about i don't know like many years when they 
realize that it's the diet and the environment and trucking these thousands of miles and varroa mites. Varroa mites are these little tiny red crab looking things that look like like they they're like crabs but they're super bright red and they get on a bee's body and will suck the um it's called vitalogen and it's basically like they're they're sucking them so that they they get sick and they they prey on the drone bees which are the male bees they're like like the big they have bigger cells so these varroa mites are able to enter through the through the cell and then feed on the bee's lymphatic system and then that bee comes when it comes out of the cell that drone will be sick or will have a deformed wing and it's a major killer all throughout the world and that mite came from asia it came from a bee called apis serrana so here in America, we have Apis mellifera. It means honey carrying bee, which is like kind of like, all right, that's an old school term for it. But in Asia, there's Apis serrana. And somehow, you know, when people move bees, they got crossed and this might jump onto the European honey bee's body. And because a lot of the bees in the United States, like the stat, you're gonna to have to fact check me on this, but like 90% of the bees in the United States are owned by 10% of the beekeepers, meaning like big agricultural companies, you know, and the other 10% are like hobby beekeepers, you know, backyard beekeepers. And so those bees that in, are in commercial operations, and I'm not saying anything bad at all about commercial operations, they need to do their job and they're learning, you know, they have to learn more. They're under like more regulations than I can even imagine. And I can't say anything bad about them, but the practices for having like hundreds and hundreds of bees being loaded up on a truck, that's not the way a bee's life should be. <laughs> that's just not natural. Like you do that with people and you're gonna get sick because of the stress. So they load hundreds of hives, for example, and take them to be pollinated at the almond orchard. So my friend Henry is, uh, is a beekeeper. He's been a beekeeper since he was like 12 years old. And uh, now he's a commercial beekeeper, but a small, small operation. And he does only organic almond fields, like only organic stuff. And even him, like he has like 100, 150 hives he has to constantly feed those hives with sugar syrup to maintain them like because there's not enough forage where you can keep 100 bees and then they all of a sudden have all this food no they have to be supplemented not only with sugar syrup but they also have to be treated with miticides um, fungicides and sometimes most likely like antibiotics because they're very chemically dependent bees and they're managed like all the time. And so bees get stressed out, bees get depressed, bees know like when it's a healthy environment and they know when it's not. And usually when it's not a healthy environment, they'll leave. But in some cases, 
where you have like hundreds and hundreds of beehives, those bees can be easily replaced by a beekeeper, for example, by splitting a hive or by getting more queens from queen banks or artificially inseminating queens in a bank, uh, in a lab, and then getting those queens because these queens die, like 30% of the queens when they're in transport will die either from stress or being rolled or squashed. And where are you gonna find a new queen? Well, it's a big business. You know, a lot of companies sell queens and this is just not how nature intended it to be. So that's my little spiel on like colony collapse. And the, the, the thing is like, it's improving. So like um, there, the, bee, the bee population numbers are rising a little bit, but they're still using these same farm farming, um, like these pesticides that are so bad, but they're trying to change those pesticides like neonicotinoids. It's like a tobacco thing. So like not only are the bees, not only is it bad for the bees, but it's like an addictive product, you know? So they're gonna keep coming back to pollinate these, these, these fields, these almond fields. And they're like, they're gonna get their next hit of nicotine kind of, you know, like to, so that they're, they're forced into this like vicious cycle because a healthy bee colony, and even if it's not a healthy bee colony, sometimes when they know this is not right, they'll just leave, they'll just leave a place and they'll like go somewhere else better. And so like, there's this great article I read a couple of years ago on um, the New York Times and it was called The Insect Apocalypse. And it was about a study in Germany where they went to the most pristine forest that they could find and they had data based on the amount of insects that were in that forest you know, since like the 1950s, 70s, and they were able to measure that data by putting nets under the forest canopy so that they can measure the amount of insects falling onto this forest canopy and they would weigh it. So they had data from like the 50s, 60s, 70s, and then they did the data, in like, you know, year 2000, 2000, maybe 2015, 2016, something like that. and 80% of the flying insects had disappeared in Germany. They were just like gone. And then I asked people, like, you don't have to be in Germany, but when you take a long road trip, notice when you were a little kid, there were a bunch of insects flying into the windshield and on your bumper, and it was just all over your car. But you don't notice that anymore these days. Think about that. And that's just like, I've asked many people this, and they're like, yeah, that doesn't happen anymore. So the bees are, are the ambassadors for like, because they're cute, they're fuzzy. And, but it's not just the bees, it's a lot of flying insects all over the world that's being affected. So what happens to the greater world when the population of bees diminish? Well, we depend on bees for pollination for most of the like delicious food that we eat, you name it, coffee, uh, nuts, chocolate, strawberries, oranges, apples, even alfalfa um, for cows that, you know, we wouldn't have like as many like milk products or cheese or beef, you know, like we basically would be eating only if they disappeared, 
not that that's ever going to happen, God forbid, but we would only be eating wind pollinated plants, which would be like rice, maybe some wheat, corn. It's pretty boring. There's no like, there's no fruit in that diet. There's no, there's no like color in that, in that food choice at all. And food would be very, very expensive, like extremely only like the richest people can afford food if, you know, they were trying, if, if bees disappeared. And mind you, people are trying to use uh, CRISPR technology at, at like the, at the highest level of science to try to create bees that are pesticide resistant or even futuristic moving forward. They're trying to create robot bees. And if you've ever seen that Black Mirror episode, that was so cool where they made these robot bees. So yeah, um, they're really, really important to not only like the planet because basically we depend on two types of bees. So there's nine types of bees that make honey. The other, like there's 20,000 different species, if not more of bees, but most of those bees don't gather as like a collective. They're basically just solitary bees and they carry about their life pollinating just as good as regular bees, but because of habitat loss, and just, you know, larger and larger cities are encroaching on wild land. There's not any, any food for them. So those solitary bee populations are also reducing, but we can't figure that out. We don't have the data because there's just not enough scientists or citizen science people to, to look into that or even rehabilitate those areas, you know, so that bees have forage so that they have food they're not supposed to be eating sugar syrup oh and by the way like 90 percent of the honey in or 80s something like 85 percent 90 percent of the honey sold in most stores is um adulterated or most of those um bees are fed sugar like a combination of sugar syrup and it's kind of like the, the customer is misinformed. Even when you look at like honey and cereals, I recently saw honey and toilet paper. Like, how does that even make sense? So honey is used in cosmetics and it's to give this consumer, to give the consumer like a sense of like, oh, this is natural. This comes from like a natural source, but no, the way it's harvested is very, it, it's brutal. It's a brutal business, just like how our meat and our food and our fish is processed. It, it's it's a brutal process, you know. And I think those that that suffering translates through biology, through the animal, and it imprints into that animal. And when we when we feed on that animal, we we can sense that, we can feel it. So it, it's it's a vicious cycle. And I really don't have a solution. And I can't get mad at anybody. Nor can I say, oh yeah, I'm. I know what I'm doing and what I'm doing is the best way. It, it's really like we're at, let me give you an example. So when I used to think that uh, symbiosis, like this is a buzzword, like, oh, symbiosis, that's, that's such a cool world, word. And then I found out that there's three types of symbiosis or there's actually four or five, but I, I remember the three. So what the bees have with the planet, they've been here for over a hundred million years what the bees have is called a uh, mutualism so it's a mutualistic symbiotic relationship with a planet where the bees benefit and the entire 
planet benefits, literally. And then the other type of symbiosis is commensual symbiosis, meaning like a, like a barnacle on a piece of rock. Like that barnacle is feeding off of that, the ocean waves, but it's not harming the rock. It's not ro harming the ocean, you know? And that's a commensual symbiosis. And the last symbiosis is a parasitic, where a host will feed, you know, where that, that parasite will feed on its host and the host body will be sick and die. And that's the relationship we have with each other, with the planet. It's just like we're at this larval stage in our evolution. And um, I think we could do better. And I learned a lot from the bees, you know. So two questions. Why almond fields and what is the lifespan of a bee? Um, almonds, I believe, are um, the like 90, something like 92% of the almonds are made in California. For the entire world, oh, wow. there's like thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of almonds, and they're mostly made in California. So that's that's why. And they do also like orange and uh, like other fields, like orange, um, peaches, all different kinds of fruits, strawberries, and and. Bees get moved around in, in trucks and, and stuff. So yeah, almonds is huge. It's, it's this basically a, a, like a 30, $40 billion industry in, in pollination, you know? And it's, it's big money and a lot of the big companies are aware of what's going on with bees. They would love to treat the bees better. But when, you're, when you have like such a big, oper big operation, and your bottom line is like a capitalist bottom line, you know, profit. It's sort of hard to, it, it, you, you've broken this, this relationship with nature, completely broken this relationship with nature. It's not even about nature anymore. It's just about the almighty dollar. As far as bees, how long they live, uh, in the summer, they'll probably be like, I don't know, like somewhere between six to eight weeks because they're doing a lot of work. They'll live a little longer in the winter, and that's just the worker bees. The queen will live two years at best. I, I have a queen that's she's like four years old and she's like an old lady now. And I, I, I keep her around because even though she has like this little tiny hive and, and her family hasn't um, retired her yet or have, have, hasn't gotten rid of her and replaced her, She's still doing great, even though she's not laying a bunch of eggs. She's just laying like, you know, just a tiny amount just to keep the colony going. And like, it, it's kind of cool to have an old queen. Can you describe the different aspects of the colony and who's who and how it operates? Sure. Um, so in a colony, it's, it's a very like complex society where the queen, she's like the mom. So she has to lay the eggs and um, she, before she becomes a queen, um, she'll, so the bees are one of the few animals that practice polyandry, meaning like wasp, ants, bees, I forget the other one. There's like four of them or five, meaning they'll mate with several males and what the males are are drones. The drones will fly to what's called the drone congregation area. And in the springtime, the queen will, the virgin queen will come out of her hive 
fly to the drone congregation area where like thousands of dudes are just hanging out. It's like one big giant sausage party in the sky. And she will fly as far as as far away from her hive as she can so she doesn't mate with any of her sons, right? So she'll fly as high as she can and then these drones will do their best to try and mate with her. And there are some like immature drones up there that are not ready for mating. So they're just kind of out there practicing. But then the males that do mate with her, they will like, they'll mount her and then they'll flip backwards, like as they mount her and then they flip backwards and it's like a few seconds and their, their phallus, their endophallus, basically when they flip backwards after they have um, inseminated her, they'll, her, their endophallus breaks off and they fall to their deaths. And that's basically the life of a male bee. And male bees get a bad rap because there's not a lot of studies that have been done on them. And I used to think that they did nothing and that's, that's the rap they get, but they're just not really known. Uh, there's not enough study. And, you know, recently um, people are doing more studies on the male bees. I mean, I've seen male bees like drones defend the hive. Like they don't have stingers, but I've seen them like, come at me you know like just attack me and I'm like whoa that's just strange and what they love to do is they love to go at the center of the hive and they will like hum to all the young larvae and all the young eggs also like for a bee colony to make males they they have to expend a lot of resources because drones eat a lot of food they eat a lot of honey they they eat a lot because they're huge they're giant you know they're like twice as big as their sisters and so that colony is very very proud to make males they're like if we can make like uh 10 percent or 15 percent of the colony in the springtime as males they've spent a lot of work nurturing those males because those males will then propagate the genetics of that hive to another colony far away and that extends their life and therefore they can continue that genetic line. So that's the drones. The queen has like the most interesting story because there's a, you know, how a queen is picked, we don't really know. I like to say that there's a committee. So every bee, every egg uh, can be a queen unless you're a drone, basically every fertilized egg can be a queen. Now who picks the queens? The committee. I always say, all right, they pick the ones with, they pick the eggs like one day old, two day old. So a, a bee starting from egg to a fully grown adult bee takes 21 days, 22 days to develop. It just, you know, it depends. It's not an exact thing, but it's 21, pretty sure 21 days, 22 days, you know, depending on their nutritional uh, intake and that bee gets picked and then she gets put into what's called a queen cell which looks like a little tiny peanut and then that little tiny peanut they'll put her in there and feed her royal jelly for 16 days it takes about 16 days for a queen to develop and become a fully grown queen and then she'll go out on her mating flight and there can only be one queen there can only be one so if there's other queens, for example, in their cells, I mean, in their 
um, little tiny peanut houses, before they even come out, that queen will try to eliminate her competition. She'll kill her sisters. Or if they come out at the same time, they'll duel to the death and they'll fight each other. Bees have different roles. When a bee is born, its first job is to, a worker bee, they call them worker bees, but like that's such a lame name for this beautiful creature. It's like some people call them maidens, you know? So a bee will clean its cell, the little tiny hexagonal cell, it will clean its cell. Like you don't even have to tell a bee to clean its room. Like it'll clean that cell so it prepares it for the next egg that has to be laid in there. And then there are several duties around the hive. There are the bees that are fixing repairs. For example, if there's a draft in the hive, they'll, they'll coat it with propolis. It's this sticky substance they collect from tree sap, from leaves, from buds of, of plants. And they'll mix it with a little bit of wax. And it has such a beneficial properties that it's been used you know and scientifically studied there's hundreds and thousands of papers and how much it benefits it benefits the beehive and not only that like it benefits humans like i love making propolis tinctures i mean it's it really it's just amazing how quickly it enhances your immunity to things so there's bees that specifically collect propolis there's worker bees that specifically co collect only pollen and then bees that just collect nectar. There's bees that just collect water and they all work together. And there's like this really cool algorithm in how they disseminate their workforce and they communicate through pheromones, you know, <clears throat> there's, there's the guard bee, there's the undertaker bee, there's scout bees who look for real estate, like, when they're, you know, when they're swarming, the scout bees will look for the most beneficial place in the neighborhood. For example, they'll end up on a tree and those scout bees will look for the best cavity because this is a, a being that lives in a cavity. So usually they'll live in like a 300 year old tree or 500 year old tree. There's not too many of those trees around anymore. So they moved into cities and to people's like, attics and people's roofs you know and under people's basements and their walls and their fences and they've come to like live with us humans just like they did thousands and thousands of years ago so there's so much on bees basically it's like the second most studied animal on the planet next to human beings because we've been working with them for literally since like recorded history, like uh, fifth dynasty Egypt. And if you look at the seals, all the seals of the Pharaoh, like their, their seals on, on their like tombs, they always have symbols of the bee. It'll even be on their throne. And they'll, they've made like marriage vows in ancient Egypt where a husband has to bow to his wife. They has to give her a jar of honey every month, basically 12 jars of honey for the year. And, you know, you just couldn't afford honey back in ancient Egypt. It was like a very expensive thing. And even up until 100 years ago, it, it was, it's a very expensive product. Like bees have to visit millions of flowers and fly millions of miles just to bring you like that honey, you know, to taste. So it's like it's liquid gold. It's basically converting sunshine 
into this most delicious thing. You know, like through photosynthesis, it converts light energy into like a liquid delicious substance. It's so crazy. And, um, you know, we've lost that. We've lost that bond with nature. We've lost that completely. And I think if I could, you know, be make people more aware on how important this is and like you know uh this guy i don't know if you listen to this guy his name is uh dr gabor mate have you ever heard of him no so he he's he's like a specialist on on addiction he was mentioning like when karl marx was philosophizing on the uh coming up of capitalism Karl Marx basically called and predicted that there's four types of isolation in this type of society. You know, we live in a capitalist society. So not that I'm a Marxist or I'm not saying that, you know, Marx was this great dude, but he had, he had, he had a great mind. Definitely. So the first isolation is basically isolation from nature. You know, we have that isolation. The, The second isolation is our isolation with our jobs. You know, so many people are unhappy with their jobs. Uh, the other isolate this. The third isolation is isolation from others. You know, like we're so much more connected than ever, but in a, in a weird way, we're not. We're just even more lonelier in this present time. And then the last, the fourth one is isolation from yourself. So it's like, wow, those are like the the four things that people are struggling, especially now. My God, people are just like isolated at home. It's it's crazy. Can you talk a little bit more about when you say cell and how the comb is formed and how the honey is formed? Sure. Um, So the cell, when you're looking at it, uh, let me see, maybe I can show you. So do you see this? Yes. Okay, so this is a honeycomb. Um, It is made from wax. So bees convert honey into wax. Um, There's bees that convert honey into wax by sweating, like they raise their temperature a little bit over like 100 degrees, maybe like 104, 106, I, I forget but they raise their temperature so that they sweat these little tiny like pellets of wax these little like little tiny plates through their um wax glands so it comes out of their the bottom of their abdomen and and a bee will a bee will come and grab that from her sister's belly and then she'll take it up to you know, she'll take it, she'll go up the comb and then, or if, if they're start, they usually start from up to the bottom. So they'll start to build little by little by patching little bits of these wax, you know, like sort of like tile. It's just like they patch it little by little and they do it on both ends. And the way they do it is there'll be maybe like, 20, 30, 50, depends on how big that cluster, it's called festooning, is, is they'll hold onto each other's hands, you know, they'll like grab onto each other's hands and, and feet, and they'll be clinging onto each other. And it's like, so, so weird that they could build something so structurally perfect. 
without the use of ladders, without the use of like lasers. And they'll build this cone, like perfectly shaped hexagon because it is the most stable shape, one of the most stable shapes in nature. And in this hexagon, it can hold basically like pounds and pounds of honey and baby bees. And that's, that's pretty much how they build it. And when they get, let's say when, before they start it, imagine that there's a roof. Can you see, can you see where my hand is? Yeah. So there's a roof right there. And this will just be like a blank roof, but there's going to be one bee that's laying out these lines. Like she'll lay out lines that go across like this. And so there, she's the mason bee. And then all the bees that are going up to place those tiles are following the mason bees lines so that they know exactly where to put them strategically. And it takes a lot of resources to build wax. So for like one pound of wax, it takes about 10 pounds of honey for the bees to consume. So beekeepers will feed bees sugar syrup because it makes them make more wax combs or beekeepers will like use plastic foundation or wax foundation, meaning it looks like a honeycomb, but it's mechanically processed. You know, it's mechanically made. Like they can just like sort of, I, I don't think they use 3D printing, but it's something like that. They use, they use that to make these hexagonal shapes. So the bees don't have to work as much to make their comb, to make, you know, a space for them to lay babies and for them to make honey. That's how these cells and how honeycomb is made. And how is it harvested? When is it time? How do you so, know? Beekeepers usually harvest either once or twice a year, depending. And it's, it's in the fall and in the summer. And um, they, take, they take frames. So let me get a frame so I can give you an example. So they'll take a frame like this. It looks like like this. Okay. You know, and the comb will be on like this, right? So they'll take this frame out of the box, and then what they'll do is they'll take a hot knife or a scraper, and they'll scrape all the cappings from the honey. What is the, the capping? So when the bees have prepared the honey and it's 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 like ready they'll cap it with wax so that it doesn't get dirty you know so just like we cap food or we cover food bees do the same thing and then the beekeeper has to scrape that capping off with a hot knife or a scraper and then he'll put the frames inside a honey extractor which will be it's almost like a centrifuge and then they'll spin it and spin it and all the honey will fly off mm. the cell and that they're they're able to keep the comb but all the honey will fly off to the wall of this honey extractor and then pour down to the bottom and they just open the faucet and put it in the jar and that's how it's made mm. and they have big commercial extractors where they can like put dozens and dozens of frames and some people just have like two and for someone like me I'll do um, just a simple crush and strain meaning I don't collect that much honey because I don't sell honey. I'll just take the comb and cut it off the frame and like say this is honeycomb and then I'll crush it and the honey just pours out. 
and that's that's how I get my honey. So it's unfiltered, it's uh, unadulterated, like it's pure nectar. And for me, honey is medicinal. You know, it's not food, it's, it's medicine. It's, it's awesome. After you do that, then the bees just create a whole new wax comb, yes? Yeah, so. And do, are they angry that you took their home? <clears throat> oh, I gotta tell you that, that's, that's a good one. So if you, you can't break, you can't break the rule, and there's a really good movie uh, called um, Honeyland. You should check it out. It's it's so good. Uh, it's a documentary, and there's a rule, right? She, this lady says, you can only take half of the honey that the bees make, and you can't take all of their honey because they won't have any food left for themselves. So operations will take most of that honey and then replace it by just feeding them sugar syrup, which is just water and, and or just regular sugar, right? So that they can make a profit by selling that honey to market. <clears throat> and it sucks that there's so much adulterated honey out there that beekeepers can't make a profit from just selling honey. And like, you can try to sell a honey, try selling honey for like 20, $25 a pound People are like, why do I want to pay $25 for a pound of honey when I can get one at like Costco for like eight bucks, you know, or 10 bucks? Like, do you, do you, uh, you have to understand the amount of work and labor that the bees put into it. And people never uh, put that into account, like the amount of labor that bees put into this. And when I'm harvesting honey, or even if I'm not harvesting honey, and let's say that hive, that colony has so much honey that I accidentally break one of the combs filled with honey. And that honey starts to drip. When that honey starts to drip, the bees get so pissed sometimes. Sometimes they get so mad because they're like, look at all the work we did. And now you're just gonna make this mess and it's gonna bring ants, it's gonna bring all kinds of bugs here. And they can, you know, other animals can smell it like bears or whatever. And they get so mad at me and they'll, they'll come after me and they'll remember it for days. They'll like remember mm. it the next day. And usually I have to like stay away from the yards for like a couple of days before they're, they're cool with me again. Oh, wow. Do they interact with humans? Do they have an emotional bond or anything like that? Good question. Bees have like a really good relationship with their with their bee tenders, you know? And it depends, like, if you take care of them and don't harm them and are, are work slow, or, you, you know, or you could get bees that are really domesticated and that aren't gonna attack you. I mean, they are really good at reading faces, so they know you after a while. Wow. Like I can walk around my yard without a bee suit and the bees are fine you know I can go in between them and they'll go around me they recognize you they'll know who you are and if they don't know who you are they basically come up to you and make eye contact with you it's so cool like they don't have fear so most people have this like unwarranted fear of bees you know they're like oh um a bee's gonna sting you and no it's not gonna sting you it just it's going about its business, trying to forage food and get back to its hive. The stings, most stings usually happen by accident. You know, people will like 
not know that the bee is there and accidentally step on them. That's like probably 90% of the cases. And even the cases where people are killed by bees, those bees were, there's usually the people didn't know there was a beehive there and it was an accident, you know, like those bees were either like super aggressive and came after an animal like a horse or a dog or like an old lady, you know, in, in California, we are in what's called an Africanized zone, even though I don't like using that word anymore. It's like in technically they're called Apis mellifera scutellata, meaning scutellata is their region is from Africa. So I just call them scoots, you know, like having this association with like, oh, it's the African bees. It's like, man, that's an old term. And, and it's the European genetic that makes them like aggressive, you know, and some people like to refer to it as equatorial bees, but then that has been used for the last 30 years now in the media, that that's what scares people. They're like, oh man, I'm going to get attacked by bees. But no, bees don't want to attack you. Only if you go into a hive like a bear to try to steal their, their brood, meaning their babies and their honey, will they attack you, you know? But bees in general just are doing their own thing. They're just flying by you. So within a colony, let's say the one that you have in your house, after yeah. you harvest uh, the honey and get the comb, is it only their children and their children's children after, did you say two to four months their lifespan is? Or do no, they no, intermingle? Probably, okay, six to eight weeks. So all oh, the workers, yeah, six to eight weeks. So they, the queen has to continue to make bees. She has, you know, she has to continue to lay eggs. Basically, the way, the way the old school philosophers are, a colony is basically immortal. If, if, you, if you allow nature to let's, like, leave it alone, th there's like enough biodiversity and nature is always so, there was a time when there were so many bees on the planet because nature always provides. And yeah, six to, eight, six to eight weeks, what happens is they die, like a bee can live for 365 days if you keep it inside the hive and don't let it fly. What, what ages a bee is the stress of foraging. So foraging meaning they're going out into the field, gathering pollen, gathering nectar, and their wings <clears throat> beat 250 times a second meaning like they're running at 1200 RPMs every time they fly. So that takes such a toll like physically and um, they have to, eventually their wings will wear out so they can't fly anymore. And they'll just be, they'll, they work themselves to death, but it's not like they work themselves to death because they hate it. They work themselves to death because they love it. That's like one of the few examples that I can think of, of like working yourself to death in a, in a positive way, but when the bee can't fly anymore, they end up on the ground and, you know, they're, they're food for birds and ants and other animals. And that, that's basically why they, why they don't last that long. But since the queen doesn't fly, you know, she just stays in the hive for her whole life until she swarms again. So maybe she'll like swarm two or three times in her whole lifetime. That's why she's able to live longer than everyone else. Mm. And how far up 
are the male bees when they're swarming? Oh, when, when they're flying, when they're doing their mating flight. So a swarm doesn't fly too high. And, and when a swarm, meaning like uh, thousands of bees leaving the hive. But so I forget the data on, on, the, on the drones, how high they fly, but think above like a, a pine tree, for example. You know, like you can look at a pine tree and they'll fly like above those pine trees, you know? And that's, that's pretty much how high they'll fly up. And the queen can fly just as high. The workers aren't able to fly as, as high as the drones, but they definitely work harder than the drones. So the drones, if they don't impregnate the queen, what do they do? <laughs> this is a good question. So um, a drone will try their best to find a queen. And every afternoon, like clockwork, they'll go out to the drone congregation area, try to find a queen. And if there's no queen, they come back to the hive. And they just kind of like, kind of like couch around, you know, they'll like ask their sisters to feed them. They don't really clean. They don't really like do any work. They don't build any comb. They don't even guard. They have like a, such a privileged life. And their sisters love them very much up until the fall. So when the fall comes, because they take up so many resources, come around like October, late October, November, even earlier than that sometimes, all the drones get kicked out of the colony meaning all their sisters will literally like bite at them, pull at them and kick them out of the colony and they can't get back in. You see them trying to get back in sometimes or fighting to get back in, but all the females have had it with them. You know, like they didn't put in any work and so they get kicked out and they die from the cold, you know, from the cold outside because they're not in that cluster of bees. So. This is an animal which is a super organism. And when you think thousands of bees, yeah, it's thousands of bees, like we have like millions of cells. And it's a super organism, meaning it is one being. It is just, I always refer to it as one female being, or in the springtime, it's a hermaphrodite. Does each, you, how many species do you say there were? Of honeybees? Nine. Uh huh. Okay, yeah. nine. So do they ever intermix with each other or does a species only stay within a species? You know, I am not sure about uh, intermixing. I would have to look a little bit into that. You know, that's, that's really something I never looked into. You know, like, can you mix a bee from Asia or from, you, you know, they've, they've done this and this is how they've created the, uh, you know, very feared Africanized bees. There was a guy in Brazil in the 1950s that took a bunch of bees from different parts of South America, Africa, different parts of the world. So he wanted to mix Italian bees, meaning bees from Italy, and mix them so that they could have a, I think his name was Dr. Kerr, he's like a biologist, so that they could have a productive bee because like, the bees that are more aggressive usually make a lot more honey, meaning they, they, they're like really good at making honey. And then the Italian bees, who are just like the chillest bees, the nicest bees you can imagine. Like when you open a hive, they don't even bother. They're just like, hey, what's up? How's it going? They don't come at you. So they're trying to mix these two 
genetics together and they ended up making an even more ferocious Frankenbee, you know what I mean? And it was an accident because all the bees that this guy had collected were stuck in customs for a couple of weeks. <gasps> and so they died. And the only bees that survived were the strongest and most aggressive bees. And so he had to work with what he had to work with. And then he mixed the what? Yeah, he mixed the Italian and the, uh, the bees from Africa together. And there was an accident where like one of his assistants accidentally released all the queens and they had like just decimated all of South America, Brazil, and moved all the way to North America, like Texas, New Mexico, California. And it took them about, you know, 15, 20 years to do this, but that's what happened. That was the accident. That was tragedy. Wow. That's why us beekeepers here in California and beekeepers in Arizona and in Texas, that's why we have to wear those big like hazmat suits because we're afraid of being stung by, you know, these really aggressive bees. And, and the bees in, in, in Europe, oh my God, those guys have like such a cool deal. Like they can wear, they don't have to wear a lot of mask or a lot of gear because those bees are really nice and gentle. Wow, that's crazy that it's just from being stuck at customs. That's yeah. so nature versus nurture right there. Survival right. of the fittest. Right. My mind is blown. <laughs> what would you recommend for just an everyday person? Is there types of honey that are good quality and coming from a good source? Well, you have to do your research on the internet and um, it's probably better to talk to your like local beekeeper at your farmer's market or if you know somebody that has bees. And um, there's so many different kinds of honey, Chloe. There's so many different kinds. Like the most expensive honey um, comes from a cave and it's like $2,000 a pound, less than a pound because they have to literally like spelunk to get it and it's supposedly it like has all these minerals from a kick from the from the cave where it grows and it comes from super wild bees you know and Have then you there's tried it no i can't afford it <laughs> and then there's like um honey from the himalayas which is called mad honey and it's gotten gained some popularity where uh, these honey hunters it's a very ancient tradition. They climb up like Alex Honnold, you know, like free solo, these rock cliffs, like hundreds and hundreds of feet up in the air. And they collect honey from these giant honeycombs, like basically uh, Apis dorsata, meaning they're the biggest honeybees in the world. They're, they also live in India, in the Him Himalayas. And they collect that honey and that honey has um, hallucinogenic properties. And um, they use it in, in their tradition as medicine also, that honey is meant to uh, expel diseases in the body. But if you take too much of it, you could die. You know, and it's, uh, the bees take it from the rhododendron flowers, meaning it has like psychoactive properties and get you high. You know, if you just, you can only take like a spoonful, like the whole day. Otherwise, you could get really fucked up. Wow. And there's all different kinds of bees too. There's like stingless bees that produce honey and stingless bees live in the tropics so that honey will taste 
will have like coconut flavor or mango or um, passion fruit, you know, not like the, the, the honey we have here in, in California. It's more like citrusy in taste or, you know, mm. it, it depends. There's some honey that you can buy says clover honey or orange blossom honey, meaning that particular field is just filled with orange trees and they know that the bees have only been pollinating that one type of fruit. And most honey that's sold is probably just wildflower honey, meaning several, several different flowers and trees that they gathered it from. Mm. Well, I've been seeing a lot of bees on the ground, whether it be the sidewalk or at the beach. What is that about? So you ever see uh, gardeners spraying pesticides on sidewalks? And, uh, you know, for like really well-maintained yards around town, you know, you see all these big, beautiful, lush front yards with their green lawns. That is filled with pesticides, you know, Uh... to keep the weeds from growing. And then they'll spray the cracks of the sidewalks to keep weeds from growing. So pesticides can collect in the air. It can be lifted by the wind. And these, you know, it's happened, like they can visit, to me it's happened so many times, well, they'll, they'll visit um, a, a bush or something or come in contact with that pesticide and they'll come back to the hive incredibly weakened. They'll be like twitching and they look like they're in pain and they're struggling. So when you see that, uh, you know, the, it's a major cause of bees being like falling on the ground it could be pesticide from my experience or it could just you know if it's a lot of bees yeah it's pesticide but sometimes that bee could just be resting or it's on its last wing you know like it it can't fly anymore sometimes it's just resting but i i attribute it to just the huge amount of pesticides that's used in you know our neighborhoods it's so common Oh, so you think the ones at the beach, it's the pesticides from the grass and perhaps the wind blows them over to the sand yeah, the and where the water is? You know, like you've seen those manicure yards over and by the beach, like they're so yeah. like just lush, but they're completely useless. Like I just want my, my front yard to look like a green thing that doesn't serve any purpose just because, you know, it was some kind of idealized standard of beauty back in the 1930s or 40s and the people right. still continue to do that you know what i mean right 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 so what can we do as humans for the bees to stop dying oh Is there wow. anything we can do well we need to have that connection with nature um as far as that i i think it's important for us to to plant trees, to plant uh, flowers and uh, different types of different types of plants. There's this one great uh, documentary on YouTube. You should check it out. It's called The Forest Man of India. And this guy, just with his wife and his kid and his dog, um, over like 20, 30 years, planted on his own enough, like trees and plants to fill a space larger than Central Park in New York. He was just like on a mission starting from the 70s. 
he started planting, you know, coconut trees to prevent erosion. He started to propagate the seeds that were local to that area because this area was constantly under attack from erosion. So he started putting roots down so that the soil wouldn't erode. And because of his work, when there were more trees and plants in that area, the, the birds started to come back. Elephants started to come back, deer, and like even like certain birds that weren't there for a long time. So nature started to come back into like equilibrium just from one guy, one dude planted enough space the size of Central Park where people thought, man, this, this is like a wasteland. So it's a simple act of just, you know, putting something into the earth. That's it. I mean, that's, and, and just being aware that like, and not being scared um, of, of bees and insects, because there's, there's a definitely a deeper meaning to like, imagine every time we eat, like every third bite, is pollinated by a bee. So anytime you eat an apple, an orange, even when you eat almond or you, you get almond milk, for example, um, a bee pollinates that. So like some of the best moments that we have is on a dinner table or like dinner with friends, lunch with friends. And we just forget like who brought that food to us, like the trucker, the the server the cook and then you go trace that all the way down and it's like oh a bee pollinated that one piece of fruit you know so i think we're just very much in the now like what can i get now what can i get for me we don't really think of the whole chain of of events you know the interdependency that we have with each other we're very much like like centered on just what's present. Like I got to pay my bills today. You know, for example, I don't want to think about the bee or, or the trucker that had to drive a couple of hundred miles just to get, you know, that one piece of whatever food on the shelf, you know, and all the people involved in that whole chain. It's, it's, I, I think that even food distribution, like uh, there's a stat out there where 40% of the food in the United States is wasted can you imagine and there's still people starving and so like i wish they would use artificial intelligence to figure out how to evenly distribute all this food so that no one goes hungry or that this food doesn't get wasted you know i'm just throwing stuff out there you know there's people who who've been thinking about this for a long time and and have books and books on how to save the human race or things like that, you know, you, you can do research for days. And we just, I guess, we just all have to agree and uh, talk to one another, you know, like work with the small community that you have, like that little small community in your neighborhood. Talk to those people and like, ask them, hey, are you using pesticides on your yard? You know, simple as that. Tell them don't use pesticides, you know, plant plant flowers on your front yard instead of grass. <laughs> and where did you begin with your fascination with bees? How did that start? It was uh, many years ago, and it was just kind of like a random thing. I never thought I was going to be a beekeeper. And my um, girlfriend back then had a book about bees. 
and we were like, oh, let's let's get into beekeeping. So we went to a few meetings, and that's when uh, beekeeping was still illegal in in Los Angeles, and you couldn't keep any bees. So if you had bees, you were like an outlaw. And uh, we attended some meetings, and then I just got this deep, deep like download, and it it was weird because like the first workshop that I went to, I got stung right on the head, like right on the temple. And it was because I wasn't wearing a suit. I just came up to a really wild hive at my friend's house on her roof. And one bee came out of nowhere. Like there was this little drone on the ground. And I said, oh, look at you, let me pick you up. So as I picked up this drone, I was looking at it. One bee came out of nowhere and stung me right on the right temple. And then a few seconds after that, another bee came in from my left side and went directly right into my ear, like inside oh. my ear, you know, for like, um, it must have been two minutes and I could not put my finger in there. I could not like tap my oh. ear. because I just couldn't do that because I knew if I did anything to like upset this bee, it would sting me and, you know, my, my head would swell up and that's a trip to the hospital, right? No way I'm not doing that. So I just was patient and. I, I climbed down the stairs as calmly as I can. And then I was just like bouncing up and down. So this bee would come out and I heard it. It was so loud in my ear. And then finally, it just came out after like two minutes, flew, flew out of my ear. And that day, I think the bees were like, you're working for us now. <laughs> it was the scariest I swear, out, of all my, out of all the things that could happen they literally went in my ear and talked me into it <laughs> I love it it happens like that <laughs> yeah it's the craziest thing and here I am like you know I, and it, it, there was a there was a time when I was like, oh, I could just have one or two beehives, and I really wanted a beehive so bad that one time I was building a box. Like, okay, I'm gonna build a box, so eventually I'm gonna have bees, and I'm gonna put these bees in. And this gardener next door said, hey, what, what are you doing? Um, I'm like, I'm building a bee box. He's like, oh, I know where you can get some bees. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, I'll take you up there. I'm like, how did you get these bees? He said, um basically the house next door was going to get these bees exterminated and he didn't want them to get exterminated. So he just took the bees with his bare hands. And like, I saw his hands, like, you know, gardeners, like their hands are calloused and like fat and calloused. And I go, didn't you have a mask on? He's like, no, I just put a paper bag over my head. <laughs> and out of the kindness of his heart, took these bees and put them in a box drove up this hill on in Mount Washington and dropped them off on on the side of the hill and oh. I was like okay um show me where these bees are and he I followed him he drove up <laughs> the hill, and then he was like they're over there I'm like where they're like they're over there can't you see them I'm like oh I see them and then he books it he's gone <laughs> and then I went up to these bees and these were the most aggressive bees I've ever like if you now that I've no bee behavior, I can look back and say, at that time I didn't know about bee behavior, and I thought that bees were just gonna attack you all the time and follow you for like several feet, you know, and and continue to ping at you for like 
30 minutes to an hour. And so um, I decided I was going to get these bees. So it was a full moon. Uh, me and my girlfriend got and waited for the sun to, to go down. And we shouldn't have waited for the sun to go down, but we wanted to, all the bees to come into the hive because we didn't want to leave any bees behind. And then I was like, how am I going to get these bees in my car? Because it was just in an open box and they were literally on the floor. And meaning when you have bees on the ground like that, they're going to be ultra aggressive because animals are just going to come there and they're going to smell that honey and they're going to want to take it. So that beehive had to defend itself. Like it, it didn't even look like a beehive. It looks like they just survived. They were like such a strong survivors that they had to defend themselves no matter what. So I couldn't think of anything. I was like in a cardboard box. There's not a box big enough for me to put them into. So my mom gave me the idea of like, why don't you just get a blanket and wrap up the whole thing in a blanket? I was like, great. So I wrapped them up in the blanket and when me and my girlfriend lifted it, it must've weighed like 50, 60 pounds. And we had to walk down a hill in Mount Washington, put it in my Jeep, drive, home and then place it in the yard and that was the first time you know like my that was my first bee capture and it was so fun so fun wow. and so cool. yeah did you build something to contain them or did you just let them we, out well no we had see the way they were made it was a little the way they the way the gardener had pulled all the combs together he like literally put one comb like facing down, put another comb on top of it, put another comb on top of it. So that's not a natural way for, for bees to, 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 to exist. We just coat honeycombs on top of each other like pancakes, but they were able to make it work. It was the oddest thing that I, hmm. I, I've ever seen. So I had, I had bought a box, which is a Langstroth hive with frames. And then I had to cut out all the comb and put them onto the frame and tie them with rubber bands so that they stayed. And the next day I came to the hive and all the bees left. They were like gone because they were so shocked from the move mm. and from like the way we had rearranged everything. Oh. And we couldn't find them. So um, we I, we called our mentor, uh, Kirk Anderson. Kirk Anderson's like an LA legend, you know, he's, he's pretty known. Um, and he came over and uh, we had the hive on top of this table with the blanket still wrapped around the table and he lifted the blanket and the bees were there right underneath the table. They were swarmed like in a giant ball. And so he just put the, the box underneath them and gave it a big whack with his big hands, boom, and all the bees went into the box, and they stayed. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was, it was cool. It was like one of those things that you never forget. And there's a lot of more adventures I've had, but that one sticks to me, because, you know, it's the first time, like. They're so intelligent. I'm, I'm shocked. I never count, realized. They can count to four. So bees have a concept of zero uh, to four. Um, bees definitely get depressed. In, in Israel, they've trained bees to sniff out bombs, you know? What? Yeah, bomb sniffing bees. 
And how it's, do they count to four? So somebody put a test, you know, these scientists are incredibly like smart in how they do it. I forget, but they have a concept of zero and four because I think they, they know better too. Cause like, can you imagine a bee finds a food source with like lots of flowers. And then when they look at the world, they look at the world as pixelated, sort of like an old 80s Atari game. And right when they're about to get to the flower, they don't see that flower exactly as we see it until they get really, really close to it. And if a bee, if another bee visited that flower already, that bee would, that bee would be able to detect the electromagnetic charge of that flower. So it would have less of an electromagnetic charge. And so they wouldn't even bother with it. They'd just like feel it and move on to the next flower mm. that was more electromagnetically charged. And they would land on that flower and then go back to the colony. And then bees communicate through dance. They communicate through dancing uh, and pheromones. So the guy who found that out was this guy named Carl von Frisch. And uh, he officially coined it the Waggle Dance and got the Nobel Prize for it. Oh. So this was, um, this is one of the most complex ways of communicating because I couldn't dance to tell you how to get the target if I even tried, you know what I mean? <laughs> and like no plug for target, I got to use something else like the stoler. All right. So like I couldn't tell you how to get to the store by dancing, but they celebrate that by dancing. So when they find a food source that's so you know awesome so imagine when if they got nectar right they got nectar and they put it into their honey crop and then they go to the hive and their sister will meet them and then they're they're going to give their sister a little bit of a taste of that nectar and it's called trophallaxis so they'll give their sister a little taste of that nectar just to see the the quality of it and and the like the the type of nectar, what it is. And then she'll do a dance. But first, before she does the dance, she wants her sister to like help her. Let's say, for example, if the bee has pollen and she's carrying pollen and that it takes a while for some of the workers to come and help her, like unload that pollen. So she does this like tremble dance where she's just like, ah, she's so frustrated. She's like, get this load off of me already, you know? And then she can, she, then she does like another dance, which is the waggle dance, which tells the bees the direction of the food source based on the orientation of the sun, the, the speed of the wind and the time of day. And it's, it's like the bee doesn't immediately, the bee that follows her in that dance circuit doesn't immediately, they like, they do a little waggle with their, with their butts. They just waggle their butts, waggle their butts. And they'll go up, meaning it's towards the sun. And if they go down, it's away from the sun. And then depending on the left and right and how fast they waggle their butt is how close or how far the, the food is. And so like imagine going home and you came from the grocery store and you're like, yay, you just did this dance. How much like instead of just like dropping it off and like putting it in the fridge, you know, like they celebrate life. Truly, they, they truly celebrate life. And the bees don't always find where the food source is through the dance. They may give it like a couple of chance to, to try and find it, but they use their scent. So they're able to smell 
better than mosquitoes or even flies because but they smell pollen and nectar and when they smell if a bee smells another sm another bee like for example if a bee from another colony finds itself lost in comes into the entrance of another colony the guard bee will step up to that bee and the guard bee will say you don't belong here and i'm just narrating you know but the way they say that is they smell that bee like a dog would sniff another dog you've seen other dogs sniff other dogs they'll go around mm -hmm. that dog they'll smell all around the dog bees do the same thing and if that bee doesn't belong to that colony that guard bee will stop them right away and if that stranger bee continues to further go in she'll call for backup and like two or three of her sisters will come from behind and I've never seen the signal for the backup. Maybe it's a tap. Maybe oh. it's a wiggle. Maybe it's a pheromone. But two or three or four of her sisters will come and beat up that bee. Because wow. they, don't, they don't want her coming in because she could be sick. She could be trying to rob the place. You know, she could be trying to do anything. Wow. And you've seen this. Yeah. It's, it, you know, the best part about beekeeping is not going into the hive. It's just watching bees going in and out of the entrance. Uh -huh. yeah. Daily, do you observe? Um, daily, I don't observe, but I definitely spend a lot of time with them throughout the week. And, uh -huh. it, 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 you know, I like, I have my bees in my backyard, so I will like have a cup of tea or drink, uh, drink some beer or read a book in the morning. And the hive is literally like two feet away from me while I'm reading mm. and I'll just observe them taking the scent of the hive. They have the scent that's so, it smells so good. It's like, it's like, it's like fermenting, like a fermenting scent. And it's from um, the honey, it's from the propolis, it's from the bee bread. So bees know how to cook too. So that pollen that they take from the flower, it, that's the, that pollen, the baby bees can't digest it. So they have to ferment it, sort of like kimchi, you know? Mm. They have to like mix a little bit of honey or, or nectar into it. And then it rises, the pollen rises and they mix it with their, they, they mix the pollen and layer another piece of pollen on top of it and it starts to rise. And then it becomes this nutritional food that they give to their baby bees and it's filled with like, vitamins minerals amino acids it's like the most perfect like i can't say perfect but it's the most like nutritious rich food that you can't buy anywhere because you can't sell bee bread you can only eat bee bread if you're a beekeeper or if you happen to be there at the right time of year with the beekeeper uh -huh. so this, the pollen that they sell at the store is just pollen it's like it, it has benefits but not like bee bread Oh. And bee bread is delicious. It's like if you've ever gone to like a bakery and had like some of the most delicious cupcake and like, you know, a little like, it's so delicious. It's amazing, especially when it comes in fresh comb and there's like nectar in there. Oh my God. <laughs> it's so good. And mm. I, I don't eat a lot of it, but when it, when it, when I, can, when I can take a little bit of it, I can't resist. I have to eat it. Mm, what does it look like? Same texture? Um, so it has this like chalky texture. Sometimes it tastes like citrus. And um, it looks like, 
so imagine pollen and like it comes in different colors sometimes and it, it looks like if if you were to take it out of the cell it, and, and enlarge it it would look like a hexagon cupcake oh like, like the coolest candy or pastry that you've ever seen and no human can they wow. can try to replicate it but i've never seen it like in a fancy candy shop or anything like that and how is royal jelly made for the so queen royal jelly is made in the glands of the youngest bees the youngest bees make it with their um i forget the, the gland name it's it's on the side of their mouth and it's a white milky like acrid substance i mean royal jelly I don't know if you've ever tasted it, but the, the royal jelly that they sell at the market is usually mixed with some kind of honey or, or flavoring because real royal jelly tastes like battery acid. Like if oh. I even take a little bit of it, not that I've ever tasted battery acid, but if you take a little bit of it, it'll make you cough. It'll be like, ugh, it'll get stuck in your throat and it's just like rough. But yeah, the youngest bees are always hanging out with the queen and they're feeding her royal jelly throughout her whole life because she doesn't even have the appendages to feed herself. So they're like cleaning up after her, they're grooming her, they even put her on a diet when they have to swarm and they feed her royal jelly so that she can maintain her, her youth. Mm -hmm. And royal jelly has been used to like help so many people, you know, it, again, it's another source of medicine, but the way it's harvested, I don't think it's ethical at all because they, they usually end up killing the queen to do it. Mm. I used to live in New Zealand. Manuka honey was a hit over there. Oh, yeah. Manuka honey is very expensive because first it comes from New Zealand, and the manuka flower only blooms for two weeks. And most of the money, basically, uh, they spend on that honey is protecting that habitat protecting that very beautiful, like pristine habitat. And also, you know, uh, beekeepers steal from other beekeepers. So they have to, you know, not only protect it, but they have to fly helicopters over these fields to transport uh, beehives and transport honey. And w when you only have that two week window, it's a very laborious and expensive process. Yeah, it's, it's, and it has a different healing property than regular honey because if you put honey like on a cut or, a, you know, a burn, Manuka honey has a different chemical process of healing and um, they found that it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's faster than the other honeys. And I don't know what honeys they're comparing it with, but yeah, it's definitely have different kind of healing properties, which is so beneficial. Mm -hmm. And they, they also use um, medical grade honey. Medical grade honey is used in um, surgery units. So that honey actually heals wounds faster than if they were to use like, you know, I don't know what they use to, to heal wounds, but they definitely use medical grade honey. So it, it, it has its advantages. Mm. Do you have anyone that you like supporting here in LA in terms of honey to buy? My friend Jen, um, she's uh, my neighbor, like a, a few blocks here, and she she sells honey, and I know she doesn't treat her bees. Her her bees are totally like almost like feral; they're almost wild, and she's able to harvest a few 
um, pounds, like a couple of hundred pounds of honey a year, and she sells out really quick, you know. And um, I, I can't really say much about all the other guys because I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I have enough honey for myself and my family to like, I love the honey that I get. And, the, and sometimes I'll go on removals and have wild honey. Like I try my best to like not get that honey contaminated by like dirt or anything. And I've, I've had some, found some good honey from like, you know, from sunset. Uh, or from Venice or Santa Monica, you know, but they come from wild col colonies. They're not like managed colonies. And so when even like in Glendale, one time there was this hive that wasn't inspected for like 10 years and the comb inside the hive was so dark. It was so like, it was almost like charcoal, but the honey that came out of that and comb that old is, is like, super hard you can't really break it anymore it's just like super super hard so like the honey that I got out of that hive was maybe 10 years old and you can't even get like like it was just you could tell it was super old and it was layered with so many like different colors of sediment of pollen that it was the best honey I've ever tasted and I, and I really believe that like aged honey not meaning like it's aged it's in a jar it's aged inside the beehive is some of the best tasting honey mm -hmm. i bet wow okay so jen anyone else that any of our listeners can hit up if they're looking um, for honey there, there's my friend henry he, he does balding's uh bees um he's um he sells honey too and the honey that he gets is some like very rarely when some of the honey that I like getting from him is from the honey that he has bees in Joshua tree. And the last couple of years, he's been able to get super bloom honey, meaning like when the rains was really strong in Joshua tree and all those plants and sages and cactuses started blooming. Oh, some of the most delicious honey. So yeah, balding, balding bees. Um, his name is Henry balding, Jen wildling honey. And, um, even my friend Dave Bach, he does uh, Buzz Honeys in um, here in Altadena, and uh, he has these small batches of honey that are like uh, different flavors. I don't know how, like where he gets these uh, honey. It's not always local. It's, I think he gets them sometimes from places like Oregon and other places. But I, I like to just keep it local, you know, because those have the most benefits, especially for allergies. Great. Good to know. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Marvin. You're welcome, Chloe. I hope uh, that you learned a lot about this. And, uh, you know, it's endless, the kind of information about bees, but that's just the, that's just the gist of it. And um, thank you for um, thank you for talking to me and learning about the bees. Yes, I'm definitely going to do my share and do more research. And you're always welcome to contact me if you want to learn more about bees or if you ever want to do beekeeping one day. Let me know. Hey. Can you share your information of where people can find you too? Oh yeah, sure. Right now I've, I've closed my um, beekeeping experience on Airbnb. So Airbnb experiences, I hit them up and they're, I asked them a few years ago, hey, would you guys be willing to do a beekeeping thing? And they were like, whoa, isn't that dangerous? But so yeah, <laughs> um, I, I do beekeeping through Airbnb and, and this year I'm going to also do my own and mix, mix up um, 
beekeeping with uh, like um, a, like a wellness type of beekeeping experience where you don't necessarily have to inspect the hive, but you'll be around the hive, like having teas and, and being surrounded by honeybees, but not like super suited up, you know, just like a very casual educational format where you can have tea, honey, and philosophize about nature. Love it. And how can people find you? You can find me on Instagram, a bee like jelly. That's just bee like jelly. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks, Chloe. Uh, thanks, Marvin. Appreciate mm -hmm. your time. All right. Bye.